Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The stock market has been on a tear, with the S&P 500 up more than 15% since its October lows. But is the rally supported by the fundamentals, or is it about to go into reverse? I want to know if company earnings and valuations justify the buoyant market. And in today's dumb question of the week, has Tina turned into Tara? Okay, let's get into it. So for all the gloom of 2022 and the bear market, things have actually done pretty well since October, haven't they, Roman? Kind of turned around and recovered quite a lot of ground that it lost. Well, certain parts of the markets have certainly rallied really hard. And I'm thinking here about mega cap tech stocks, which got completely pummeled over the course of 2021 and have just made an incredible recovery this year. But of course, that's probably not a completely healthy development but they managed to put legs in the metaverse. (laughs) But too many fingers in the AI portraits. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. Why can't I get the fingers right? Just this year, the S&P 500 is up 8% and the NASDAQ 100 is up over 22% year to date. So, you know, it's quite a strong rally. But again, that's because of the concentration that we had to start with. You know, if it wasn't the case that these mega cap tech companies made up such a large proportion of the index, then their rally wouldn't have pushed up the index as much as it has. So the starting point was bad. And now I think we're probably in a worse place in terms of concentration. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting if you look at the data. So the 10 largest stocks in the S&P 500 are responsible for more than 70% of gains so far this year. That's quite exceptional. But the reason why I say that's worrying is that that can reverse very quickly. So let's say that there's some anti-monopoly legislation that suddenly gets put forward by the government in the United States or elsewhere. Then suddenly you're thinking, well, now that rally could turn around very, very quickly. The thing is, if it's a kind of broad-based rally, I think that's much more healthy and much more likely to have legs. Was that a joke? Oh, very good. I made a joke. (laughs) I mean, you waited ages till you realised you'd made a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to just give a flavour of how extreme the concentration has become, if you look at Apple and Microsoft, which are the two biggest stocks in the index, they've never had a higher combined weighting in the S&P 500. Together, they've added more than $1 trillion in market cap since the start of the year. And they alone account for more than half of the gains in the S&P 500. And their combined weight is around 14% of the entire index. Like that's, yeah, I think it's worrying. And not only that, I think it's unsustainable because you can't have just a couple of companies generating almost all of the revenue growth and also the gains in the stock market for a long period of time. We can't have a situation where the stock market effectively becomes, you know, (laughs) just three or four companies. I mean, how did we get to the position where everyone's retirement is dependent on Apple growing its earnings. <laughs> That's just <laughs> mad, isn't it? The thing is, I'm not that keen on Apple products anyway. You know, I try and avoid it at all costs. I mean, I've got an iPad, but, you know, whenever I can, I'm not part of it. So, for example, my phone, Android, and, you know, my operating system, Linux. You are directly hurting my retirement here. <laughs> and that's why i've done it michael (laughs) yeah i mean just apple if you talk about them their market cap is something like 2.6 trillion dollars and that is as we've said before bigger than the entire uk stock market bigger than you know almost 600 companies in that index 
and bigger than the German stock market and something like 65% of the Japanese stock market. It's an exceptionally large company. But don't get me wrong, I think their products are great and I think they've done really well to create that kind of monopoly. If they didn't have good products and services, you know, Apple and Microsoft wouldn't be where they are today. But once you get to a certain level of development in terms of the size of the company, at that point, it becomes self-perpetuating. And at that point, it also becomes very much like a monopoly. Now, one of the things people have been talking about recently is things like greedflation, where companies are actually keeping their margins really high. And if you've got monopoly pricing power, you can do that. You don't have to lower your prices because people can't really push back. There isn't an alternative product or service. So I think having this concentration is worrying. Or even things like artificial intelligence. You know, you've just got a handful of companies which are really dominating in this space. And if all of the developments are controlled by those few companies, well, that's quite worrying because it means that immediately you don't get such rapid improvement in those services and in those products. It's improving pretty rapidly, (laughs) AI right now. Yeah, it is. It is. But I think what worries me is that eventually what's going to happen is they're going to come back with lawyers and say, look, we own this. You can't do that development. You know, the idea is ours. You know, that's why I think it might stifle innovation. And this is usually why people break down monopolies, because of the fact that it's keeping margins high. Yeah. So if you look at net profit margins in the US, for Q1 this year, it was 11.5%, which is a little lower than last year, which is just over 12%. But if you look at information technology as a sector, their margins are over 22%. So they make a lot more profit. And historically, it has been very profitable. You know, they've got really large margins and they have been for a very long time. But that itself now will probably get worse because if there isn't an alternative to, say, Microsoft products, then you'll be thinking, well, how can I really get away from them? I think with Microsoft, it always feels like we're on the verge of getting away from them. And then they come up with something to just drag us back in. <laughs> and that's why they've done this investment with um, OpenAI and ChatGPT to power Bing. Like They could actually start competing with Google in the search space now if it goes to a more AI-driven search, which who would have thought that? Google was the ultimate monopoly. Yeah, I've never used Bing, to be honest. I've never really used it at all. You will now. <laughs> I think I probably won't, you know, although I have tried Bard, which is the alternative produced by Google. It's crap, isn't it? And it isn't great. It isn't great. Google just panicked. The New York Times came out with a piece which said there was a code red alert within Google when OpenAI launched ChatGPT. Because if you looked at it, it's the most successful product launch in history in terms of the speed of customer signups to ChatGPT. Do you know my measure of how successful a launch is? No, what is it? It makes it onto South Park. So there's a whole episode about, about ChatGPT, which is just a brilliant episode. Yeah, I remember on Reddit, someone came up with an alternative index tracker, which basically buys stocks whenever they're first mentioned on South Park. And it's massively outperforms the benchmark. But the thing is, with these massive tech companies, why are they rallying so hard this year? Yes, they were depressed last year. But also, their earnings have been better than people expected, haven't they? Yep. So it's kind of fundamental. I think overall for the United States market, what we're seeing right now is that the price to earnings multiple, the forward price to earnings multiple is coming back up to the five-year average. Previously, it was kind of flirting with the 60-year average, which I'd say was the kind of fair value pricing. But now it's kind of pricing in more euphoria. So part of it's re-rating, more euphoria. And people are just paying more for the same amount of profit or less profit in many cases. 
But certainly for the tech companies, yeah, the earnings growth has been very good. So, for example, if we look at the forward price to earnings ratios for these mega cap tech companies, the one which really stands out at the moment and which has stood out for a long time. In fact, if you have a graph of it, you have to cap it because it just went crazy is Amazon. So that's sort of 54 times forward price to earnings multiple. That's come down a lot since 2018 when it was over 140. So does that mean you're paying $53 for every dollar of profit over the next 12 months? Based on broker forecasts of those profits, yeah. It does seem a bit crazy because it's not like it's a new company, right? It's a mature company. I think people are just really taken with the idea of Amazon Web Services, which actually we were just about to start using for a little project of our own. But it is incredible. It's a kind of modular system for building software. You know, it's been very successful for generating revenue for Amazon. But what's happened in the latest earnings was that people are cutting back on Amazon Web Services. And if you compare that with Meta, for example, that's at an 18 times forward price to earnings multiple. Apple's at 27, Netflix 26. Meta looked really cheap at like the midpoint of last year. And it's come back up a bit. Now that it's got legs in the metaverse, yeah. And then Alphabet's looking like the lame duck right now. It's roughly 19 times forward earnings. So that's the weakest one at the moment, except for Meta. Yeah, and I think that's because people are worried about AI. People didn't expect a genuine competitor to Google search. And remember, huge amounts of revenue are generated from Google search. It is the golden goose at Alphabet. And the ads that go with it. What they're talking about now is having ads which are automatically generated, which is incredible. You know, you think about it, an advertising campaign where you just give broad outlines of what you're going to show to your customers. And then it goes about generating the actual endpoint advertisement, which is quite risky, I think. What would it come up with for Pension Craft? <laughs> I tried to think. Is there any way to top your thumbnails? I saw you had a new thumbnail this week on YouTube. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is our video editor, Arslan. He's very kindly stepped in and offered to design our thumbnails for us. In fact, how about getting him to do one for the podcast? We definitely need new artwork. <laughs> I'm so sick of it. <laughs> but just think about how risky that is. Did you see that beer commercial recently on social media where it's AI generated, but it's so spooky yeah. and uncanny and just disgusting because you've got people whose fingers firstly obviously it's the finger problem you know they've got just far too many fingers and then there's this bit where these two people are drinking from this beer can simultaneously as if it's a kind of milk bottle it's just very odd therefore don't buy google stock is what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) but they're all going to do it i think you know they're all going to have these advertising campaigns which are auto-generated and highly targeted. Like they're already highly targeted, but if you can sort of make photorealistic video and audio that really plays to your own biases, yeah, we're through the looking glass at that point. They'll just take all our money. <laughs> but the thing is, I think this is the point at which there's going to be pushback. So what we have now is an ecosystem where a very few companies have a huge amount of data on each of us, you know, know almost every aspect of our lives. Combine that with the fact they've got this AI analytic approach And you combine those two things, the data and also the analytics, and suddenly you've got a very scary monopoly, which kind of becomes even more self-perpetuating. Some people think that. There was a leaked paper from Google last week, supposedly leaked, which said, we have no moat when it comes to AI, and no one else does either. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, which was really interesting and scary, I think, if you're a stockholder, because they basically think... The future has to be open sourced 
when it comes to AI to be sustainable. And there is a kind of movement to keep AI open source. And it's interesting because the meeting was going to be held in New York, but it was going to be held at a secret location, which makes it all very exciting. Not very open source, <laughs> if it's a secret location. It should be plastered everywhere. No invite necessary. But I wonder if companies would actually try to put their thumbscrews on these people who try to keep it open source. I mean, the whole name, OpenAI, suggests that it's open source, but of course it's not. Well, it started as a non-profit and then it ran out of capital, basically, and had to bring in loads of you know, for-profit capital, hence Microsoft. I think the difficulty with the open source AI movement, and we're getting way off track here, but anyway, the difficulty is running these AI models, like developing them, training them, and just running the servers is extremely expensive. Like OpenAI just burning through capital. How can you do that in a hobbyist way? You can't, right? It's still going to have to have a lot of capital behind it. What's interesting is that the way they figured out to make these models scale was just to throw more resources at it. Because I remember when we first started building these neural net models, everybody who had too many of these units in their neural network, people got shot down. They said, oh, look, you're overfitting the data. But as it turned out, that was exactly how you were going to make these things solve these really hard problems. But, you know, you're right. You can't scale these things without having huge resources. You can't do it on the cheap. No. I mean, the way we got into this whole AI discussion was talking about PE ratios. And if you look at the S&P 500 as a whole, the forward price to earnings is 17.7, which is below the five-year average, which is 18.6, but above the 10-year average of 17.3. So that kind of suggests we're roughly at fair value, would you say? Maybe a little bit expensive? But I think the problem is that overall, for the whole S&P 500, what we're seeing is earnings starting to fall. You know, we've had one quarter already of falling earnings. We're getting a second quarter of falling earnings. And we're forecast to have a third. And yet we're still getting this repricing upwards. So you're just thinking, well, okay, AI is exciting and it is probably going to power the next generation of technology. But is that going to propel the whole S&P earnings upwards? Probably not. It is a split market, isn't it, between the tech stocks and basically everything else this year. I think the thing with the earnings season that we've got now, Q1 earnings, is that, yes, they're negative. Minus 2.2% is the latest figure. You know, we're nearly at the end of the earnings season. So slightly down year on year, but that's much better than what it was forecast to be. So it was forecast to be minus 6.7% at the end of March. So, you know, a lot better than expected. As we know, the markets work versus expectations. But if you look at Q2, it's actually got worse. What do you mean it's got worse? The forecasts have got worse. Yeah, the forecast has got worse. But they forecast bad results for Q1 and they haven't been that bad. But they have been negative year on year. People always think that things go up, you know, they improve. But the fact is, at the moment, you're paying more for less earnings, which is kind of odd. So I think it's the euphoria spilling out from this kind of AI thing. You know, previously, it was to do with anything that had the word blockchain in it. Then it was the metaverse. Now it's AI. But at least with AI, it actually seems to work and do something useful. Yeah, I actually believe that AI will be revolutionary, whereas I'm less sure about those other two things. If you use it for coding, you just realise, yeah, okay, this is completely different. Yeah, I do actually subscribe to GPT now. And GPT-4, the one you get if you subscribe, is incredible, I would say. Like, it's, it's there. It's now. It's happened. <laughs> you can just ask it stuff and it comes back with, like, amazing responses. Have you noticed about the hallucination, though? I mean, it's kind of like it just makes stuff up if it doesn't know. Yeah, I like that. 
Because you, know, <laughs> you don't want an AI which doesn't know stuff. <laughs> well, there's another one, which is perplexity.ai, which is really good if you're actually searching for stuff, because it actually comes up with the references for all of the stuff that it states. And it actually produces a counter argument as well for some things. So I think that's really great because it has the references as well. So, you know, it's not just making things up. Yeah, I guess the big question here is, is this narrative going to play out in reality? And so some of the euphoria is kind of justified. But that's the problem, I think, which is that you can't predict which sectors are going to be impacted before it actually happens. It's very difficult to do that. Yeah, I mean, what was really interesting last week was there's an education company in the US called Chegg, which makes online study guides and virtual textbooks, things like that. And they basically said on their earnings report that since ChatGPT launched, they'd seen a huge slowdown in signups. And overnight, their stock was cut in half, despite them beating their earnings and revenue forecast. So they did well like on the numbers, but they just said, hmm, be careful about AI. And boom, <laughs> they lost so much money. And then it spilled out into like the rest of the market. So Pearson was down, Duolingo, Udemy, anything related to online education was just getting smashed last week because investors were thinking, oh, students are bright enough to just go and type it into the all-knowing Oracle chatbot thing. <laughs> and why do we need teams of people making educational resources now? So that's one example. I mean, that you might have been able to predict, but I think there are whole swathes of jobs which now are going to be completely transformed. In previous revolutions, like the Industrial Revolution, it was jobs which were kind of blue-collar, which people in power didn't really worry about. But if suddenly it's lawyers' jobs and academics' jobs which are at threat, well, suddenly it's the metropolitan elite who are now in the crosshairs. Well, you know, that's a very different story. That sounds like us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at human history, I guess we went from the farms to the factories to the offices because of these advancements in technology. Are we now going to go from the offices to the beaches? Or are we going to go from the offices to the gulag, right? That's the question for the next <laughs> stage of human history. I mean, just to come back to the results we've seen in Q1, like we say, there's a slight earnings decline year on year. Revenue growth is actually positive. So 3.9% so far in earnings season, which I guess you say is okay. It's below the rate of inflation, but inflation's coming down. Yeah, we've seen a reversal of what happened last year, which is that energy was a really successful sector. But now we're seeing revenue growth year on year fall by about 24% in the energy sector and around 5%, just over 5% in materials. And even information technology is falling year on year, revenue growth. Because if there is a weakness in growth, then presumably that's going to feed through into people cutting back on their IT spend. I mean, energy was always going to start falling, right? Because last year was just so exceptional in so many ways for that sector. But the interesting one, I think, is information technology. So people are cutting back on their IT spend. So despite all this hype about AI, I think ultimately, you know, you've got to generate earnings in some way. And transforming this AI revolution into something which is highly profitable is going to be the problem. And I think this is the key point, which is that whenever you get these transformative technologies, people assume that it's going to become something which is very profitable, which it might do in some cases. But it also creates euphoria. And that makes people overpay for stocks. And then you get these bubbles popping. Yeah, I guess if you look at the analyst forecasts for earnings growth, so like you say, next quarter they're forecasting negative 5.7% earnings growth. 
that's definitely not good, right? But then Q3, they're looking at positive 1.2% and Q4, positive 8.5%. So they are expecting it to really pick up towards the end of the year to bring us to around 1.2% growth for the calendar year as a whole. Does it sound plausible to you, that story, that we're going to dip a bit more and then accelerate through the second half of the year? Yeah, I think as long as we don't get a kind of big recession in the US and elsewhere, then yeah, that would be what I'd expect. It just seems as if what we're getting at the moment is just one crisis after another, often chained together because one leads on to the other. You know, like the banking crisis was a result of increasing interest rates, which was a result of high inflation, which was a result of the pandemic. I mean, you can go all the way back to the Big Bang with this chain if you want. (laughs) (laughs) But there are more links in the chain to come, I suspect. Yeah, this is my point, which is that it does feel like an accident-prone environment. And, you know, debt ceiling, do we really need that right now? No. We never need that. As entertaining as it might be to dance on the edge of disaster, it's kind of boring to play it out every few years. I mean, we've still got the ongoing war in Europe. We've still got the potential for inflation to rebound unexpectedly. Like you say, we might have recessions across the world. Maybe China's reopening isn't going to provide the stimulus everyone hoped. There's a banking crisis which could get worse. There's the debt ceiling, like you say. There's like a lot of things that could go wrong. And the market seems almost priced to perfection, right? Yeah, credit spreads very tight, volatility quite low, very low in fact. And valuations pretty high in the US. So I think nothing's being priced in, which is negative at the moment. Or at least nothing major, which is negative. Why is that? Did people just get bored of prices going down last year? I think that's it. You know, I think a lot of people expect things to turn around and for things to go back pretty much to the way they were after the pandemic, or at least back to normal or something resembling normal. So it sounds like you don't believe in the rally, really, despite being 100% equity in your core portfolio. No, I mean, I'm 100% equity because I can't time these things. But personally, I don't believe in this rally. So if I was going to do tactical stuff, currently, I'd be reducing risk. I mean, there are a lot of things which do look precarious, both from a macro perspective, like we said, and, you know, events in the world, but also the concentration like we started off with is just really high. And that's never good for long term returns, it seems like based on history. So the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 account for almost 30% of the index, which I'm looking back through history, and I don't see it higher than that, at least since 1980. So in 1980, it was 25% was in the top 10 holdings. And that was exceptionally high. If you look at 2010, for example, it was 18%. So yeah, at 30%, that is a very, very concentrated index. And if we remember that America is something like 60% of the global stock market, That's concentrated in America. And then the American market is super concentrated. So it's like concentration squared, isn't it, in a way? You'd have to go back a long way to find markets that were that concentrated. And when I say long way, I mean, you know, 120 years. So it was like railway companies made up 50% of stock indices. And that's both in Europe, in the UK, and in the US. Was that the AI of the time, was it? It was. It was railway companies. That's where it was always going to be at, of course. Those are really hot tech stocks of the time. We just had to cancel our pension craft meetup because of a railway strike. <laughs> Even now, we've not got it working 120 <laughs> years later. Yeah, so there's a pub in Maryland which is going to suffer a fall in profits as a result. But if you go back even further, the situation was even more extreme. So there's a company called Global Financial Data, which shows the sector composition for the UK market going back to 1799. And then it was the Three Sisters, as they call it, 
which dominated the UK stock market in the 1700s. Yeah, what was interesting is that in the 1700s, the Bank of England was the largest company in London, which is really odd when you think about it nowadays. You don't think about it as being a company. Well, no, it's not a company now. No. But some central banks are still listed on the market. I think the Japanese central bank is listed on the stock market, right? But certainly then, it was the Bank of England, it was the East India Company, which of course was huge, and the South Sea Company. So when that imploded, it led to the South Sea bubble. Sounds like the Bank of England is the only one still standing, and even there, barely. (laughs) (laughs) Bailey, did you say? Yeah, Bailey. So it has been this concentrated in the past, but it was kind of before markets were what you'd consider a modern market or a kind of mature market. Yeah, and that was just dominated by monopolies by the sound of it, like the South Sea Company and the East India Company. You know, they had their own armies and like controlled (laughs) trade routes and I think slave routes as well around the world. And, you know, you can sustain things if you have a monopoly, but only for so long. But I think the ultimate lesson is there was the South Sea bubble, wasn't it? That company and that whole era was characterised by the bubble. And then the railway mania, again, it was a bubble which imploded. There was a bicycle bubble when everybody was buying bicycle stocks. You know, I mean, it just happens again and again, the same pattern. But sometimes it isn't a bubble, right? Sometimes it really is the Industrial Revolution part two or part three or whatever. That's the thing, right? That's the game. You don't know if it is or not. The bicycle bubble was a transformative technology and we still have those bikes, you know, so the technology still exists and it was transformative. It's just how much you pay for it and how profitable it is. Yeah, I guess it's true that AI might just drive margins right down for everyone because it just kind of democratizes information and the ability to create stuff quickly. Like you could create a trillion dollar company on your own. The thing is, though, if you look at the components of inflation long term, and this is a thing which we often look at here, things like healthcare. Uh, what's really driven inflation in the United States, for example. So that probably won't be affected, I don't think. So what's really interesting is last week I read about a study that was published by researchers at the University of California, San Diego, where what they did is take ChatGPT, so the AI, and a load of doctors and took common questions that patients asked and asked, you know, the AI to give a response and the doctor to give a response and then, you know, showed them to the patients and said, which is a better response, which makes you feel more comforted, which has a better bedside manner, that kind of thing. And for 80% of the questions, the AI won already against real doctors. (laughs) Gave better answers and answers the patients were more happy with. The thing is, it's not tuned for that kind of job anyway. So it is a general AI. So the fact is that if you tuned it for that particular task, it would do even better. So I don't know. It's really hard to think about what sectors are going to be immune. You'd think medicine might be, but then I know in cancer imaging, for example, AI is already better than the human doctors at detecting tumours in the images. So things which require some kind of information processing, yeah. But I'm thinking about things which are physical. You know, people who unblock drains, people who move around bedpans, you know, people who do the kind of physical tasks which are difficult to replace. Until robotics really comes to fruition and is integrated with AI, I don't think it's really going to eat into those kind of margins. I think that's true. But then if you're talking about value add, like not to dismiss those kind of jobs at all, but that's not where the value is typically added, right, for stocks. Well, not at the moment. But that's not what generates the profits, right? You don't have a moat because you've got the best janitors in the world. You have a moat because you've got the best programmers or doctors or whatever it might be. 
But the thing to remember is that what drives these stock prices is the annual increase in profits. So if it is the physical stuff, which is doing well right now, that's where the earnings growth is going to be. So, you know, the renter kills, the kind of metal bashing, that kind of thing. I don't know if that's where the earnings growth will be, but that might be where wage growth will be. Yeah, so that would probably be negative then. You know, if you're reducing margins, then that's going to be a problem. I don't know. We're just speculating, but we, <laughs> we're in the start of something that feels like it's going to be a big deal. And to map out how it's going to be a big deal is difficult. But coming back to the concentration thing, I think that's not healthy. And I think what's likely to happen is this will create some kind of revolution somewhere where there is a kind of breakout sector that nobody would have thought of. That's what usually happens. It probably won't be the mega cap companies which actually control that. And here I'm thinking about something like the internet. But if you're thinking about having distributed computational ability, if you could somehow make these models much more efficient in terms of the resources they need, then suddenly it becomes democratizable, if you like. And you could have open source projects, which actually can compete with OpenAI, for example. So that kind of transformation would be incredible, I think. If we all end up having not just the internet in our pocket, but like a personal assistant who's way smarter than us and can do a lot of our thinking and reasoning better than we can, like that's scary, but also revolutionary, right? I think that would be transformative, yeah. So if you find these discussions about transformative technologies and how to invest in them and how the world we're discussing is changing, then why not join PensionCraft, where you can talk to other members of the community and me about this, plus you get access to lots of other goodies. To learn more about that, go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Has Tina turned into Tara? Now, Romin, we know that finance is an industry that loves an acronym, and I'm sure you used a lot when you were working in the investment banking world. So I guess we should clarify, what is Tina? There is no alternative. So this was what people said about markets when interest rates were at zero and equity was rallying like crazy. What? So the implication is the only thing to invest in is the stock market because, you know, bonds aren't going to do well with 0% interest rates. Which was kind of right, but also kind of wrong. Yeah, in retrospect. <laughs> in fact, both of them crashed. Yeah, I think that was also kind of the point, though, wasn't it? Was that correlation was going to be higher. So whatever you did, you were locked into the same trajectory. Yeah, there were very few places to hide. So that was Tina. There is no alternative. Now rates have risen. There is an alternative, right? Yields have scope to fall and therefore bonds have scope to rally. So is that where Tara comes in? There are reasonable alternatives. I prefer this Tara world. I think it's great. Yeah, I think Goldman Sachs coined this phrase, Tara. They're good at their acronyms, aren't they? You know, BRICS. I would have gone with Tiara. There is a reasonable alternative. <laughs> Just for grammatic reasons. So anyway, Tara is what everyone seems to have gone with. Don't think you pointed out earlier, Michael, you said, look, you're 100% equity in your core allocation. And I am, you know, I've got all of my money tied up in equity in my core portfolio, which is where most of my money is. Despite the fact that I think markets are probably overvalued right now, and there could well be a pullback. So I think in that sense, if you look at risk premium, which is how much extra return you get for taking the risk of putting your capital into any asset class. Equity is just so good historically. That equity risk premium has been high for so long. So the implication is over the long term, 
maybe Tina still applies, right? You've got to be in stocks primarily. I think so. You know, you have to go back a really long way for the equity risk premium to kind of diminish. And again, if you go back to that data from global financial data, that has the risk premium going back to the 1700s. And what's kind of interesting is that it was much lower for about a century. So if you go way back to 1692 and look at the period between 1692 and 1914, the risk premium was a measly 1.4%. Not great at all. So that's what you'd get for stocks over and above a cash investment. Yeah. And then from 1914 to 2018, it jumped up to 3.8%. Is this just as the world was getting more used to kind of a stock market world or what? Well, the stock market was very different then. Remember, that's what it looked like. It was literally three companies, one of which was the Bank of England. That's not really a market, is it? (laughs) So I don't think you can make a direct comparison with markets then. But it's interesting that, you know, there's been a pretty healthy risk premium for some time now. But I think it's true that now, with interest rates having risen, the gap, if you will, in risk premium between equity risk premium and bond risk premium, if that's a thing, right, the gap is narrowed. So to me, that says it's a negative for the stock market, right? There is an element of there is an alternative now. And so investors aren't forced to go into the stock market as much. Yeah, and I bought a thing which was a bit different recently, an inflation-linked bond. You know, I probably wouldn't have done that if I'd have gone back, say, a year. But now the yields are looking more attractive. Plus, there's a kind of added fillip, which is the possibility that the RPI index is going to be higher than people expect. So I'm kind of taking a gamble with inflation there. But also, I bought a gilt. You know, I bought a single gilt. So now you can have these things like bond ladders, which throw out cash flows, which are quite reasonable. Roman, you just needed the merest nudge to get back into bonds. <laughs> but do you agree that we've talked about these risk factors for the stock market? And there tend to be things like, yeah, the banking crisis, the debt ceiling, global slowdown. But another one is just this big macro change around higher yields on safe assets. Like Tara is worse for equities than Tina was. Absolutely. I think if you've got higher risk-free rates, no question, that's bad for equity because suddenly you raise the bar on what people expect for a risk-free return. And if equity is giving something which isn't comparable, then suddenly you think, well, you know, I'd rather have my money in bonds or at least some of it. Yeah. Because, you know, if you can get 5% risk-free, you really need equities to do very, very well to compensate you for the risk that they're going to crash. Yeah. And we're still not seeing that repricing, I don't think, to reflect that in the US, for example. And I think the key really is in the name, Tara, there are reasonable alternatives. And it's just like an individual thing about how you define reasonable, right? Like what's reasonable enough for you to go, hang on, I actually don't need to own stocks. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.